today will be from uh, Matthew 6, verses 9 to 15. Uh, this is Jesus uh, during the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, in chapter 5, it says he, uh, he was being followed by large crowds, and he sat down on the mountain uh, and began to teach his disciples. Uh, so this is uh, Matthew 6, uh, verse 9. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Do we not have a signal coming out of there? Okay, you could do it from the back. (laughs) Is that from the back or here? Okay. I'll put that down and forget it. We're going to talk about the the title of the sermon in a little bit and explain it. Uh, I wonder if I get the volume down just a little bit. It's kind of weird. but uh, It's on the other side. The other side. That's a memory stick, believe it or not. (laughs) Okay. Um, We want to start not with our reading from Matthew 6, but with a series of events that happened and recorded in Matthew chapter 18. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I'm reading the Bible, um, I try to visualize and personalize the events that I see uh, just to know what's happening and kind of to make it more real to see what's happening there. Uh, So in Matthew 18... Uh, we have a, a kind of a series of events beginning with the, the question, um, who's greatest? Now, that said, what, what I think is really kind of interesting about it is that, uh, that if you look at some of the parallel accounts, this is not really a question out of the blue. The disciples, apostles, have been arguing about who is greatest. 
And human beings kind of compete with each other, rival each other, try to outdo one another, uh, and to seek places of prominence. And so the question of who is greatest uh, kind of shows that, kind of reminds us that among the apostles, there, there were some real competitive spirits. Uh, you know, you think about it, you had uh, Peter and Andrew, who were brothers, and we know Peter was very impetuous. Andrew seems to be much more uh, mellow and more intuitive toward other people. But their fishing partners, James and John, were such that Jesus nicknamed them. Uh, we're told that the Aramaic name is Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And it's kind of understood from that that they had tempers. You know anybody that's got a temper? <laughs> we don't have tempers, do we? Uh, you know, and you can kind of understand when Jesus is going through Samaria and there's this village there that doesn't want to let the disciples and Jesus go through it because he was a Jew and headed for Jerusalem. And the apostles wanted to call down fire from heaven and just blow. You know, these are real people. You have Simon the Zealot, and kind of need to understand that the word zealot today would probably be understood as the word terrorist. You have Matthew, Levi, uh, depending on which of his names you remember him by, a tax collector who was, uh, to most of the Jewish people, a very unsavory character because he was a collaborator with the Romans. And so... It seems very natural that there would be this rivalry between uh, the people and the apostles. Who is greatest? Was it not on? Will it work back there? Okay. says it's on, but it's not. It's not cooperating. <clears throat> the joy of technology, right? Uh, so, who's the greatest? And that's when Jesus takes a little child and sets the, the child in the middle of the apostles and says, you know, unless you become like this little child, uh, you're not going to be part of the kingdom of heaven. So in that setting, <clears throat> a few verses later, Peter now asks a question. How many times should I forgive my brother? when he sins against me. And different translations have a slightly different reading on this. NIV says up to, and some of them will say, as many as seven times. And you know, Peter probably thought that was a very generous figure. I mean, somebody does you dirty, 
makes you mad. That's pretty major forgiveness if you forgive him as many as seven times. And Jesus responds in a very classic way. And, and there's a question because there's some differences in, in the ancient manuscripts. Uh, some will say, and the NIV will say, 77 times. And I remember the King James Version said 70 times 7. That's 490. Is the point for us to keep count? Okay, that's 76 times you got one more. Or that's 450, you know, no. The point that Jesus is making is it's too many times to count. That the nature of the forgiveness that he's talking about is such that it's very generously given and applied. So, uh, in that occasion, Jesus now tells a parable. And we know it as the parable of the unmerciful servant. And a king calls a servant in who owes him a very big debt. And I've kind of updated figures here, not in terms of literal amounts, but that that what this this servant, and we'll call him the first servant because there's a second one that comes in, but what this first servant owes is in the millions. And he comes to the, the king and he pleads, there is no way I can pay for that. And so the king's heart is touched and he forgives the servant. Man, that's that's big. But now that servant goes to a second servant who owes him money. And what he owes by comparison is only a few dollars. So he's just been forgiven millions. And now this servant comes and just owes a few dollars. And, and he takes that servant and he says, pay me what you owe me. And that servant says, I can't. So there's again that plea for mercy. But this time, the second service servant gets the hard-nosed approach and gets treated harshly. The king, finding out about this, becomes very, very upset. And he calls in the first servant and, and punishes him in a way. And, and to understand that in those days, debt would have you not only in debtor's prison, it could have you and your, your, your possessions taken and you and your family sold into slavery. And so the king was disturbed by the lack of compassion for the fellow servant. And so Jesus introduces a word here. We're going to talk about it just a minute here, but the word is if. So why call this sermon love demand? I mean, we talk about commands as Christians, you know, for us as Christians from the Bible. But we don't often think about demands. And as I've been thinking about this, 
I want to kind of recognize that there's a sense here that we need to have about what Jesus is saying about forgiveness. Why demand? All right, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary says, A demand is a forceful statement that something must be done. It's non-negotiable. There's no other option. And what Jesus says in this, on this occasion is, this is how my heavenly Father will treat you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. That's what the parable of the unmerciful servant is about. If you have received forgiveness... The responsibility is on you and on me to show forgiveness to others. It's interesting how many times Jesus comes back to this idea. We, our scripture reading this morning was from uh, Matthew 6. Most people know it as the Lord's Prayer, but <clears throat> I think we need to understand it as Jesus puts it. That this is a model prayer. Jesus says, pray like this. And so, you know, our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name. And as it comes down to the idea of forgiveness, he says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Can we keep going here? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Whoa. That's not just a command. That's a demand. That is a, a not optional response for God's people. When we have received forgiveness, we are expected to extend forgiveness to other people. The premise that we come from is we all need help, right? None of us is perfect. None of us has it all together. None of us is sinless. You know, we're familiar with the statement Paul makes in Romans, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's a pretty tough I would say judgment to understand. That's something that many people just kind of chafe at. You know, I've I've had people say to me, I'm not so bad. And the answer, I think, is to basically say, but are we perfect? Are we sinless? Do we have it all right? And the reality is, is we don't. We all have sinned. So... The positive side of that is 
John saying, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is a passage in John that I love to use, uh, especially in, in counseling, because John has just said, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, what a lot of us hear in our, and it's not just humility, I think it's even more, it's our sense of guilt and shame and our, our feeling of imperfection <clears throat> that we don't deserve what John is is telling us. We don't think we're walking in the light perfectly. But the point that John is making here, as you read the context, is that walking in the light does not mean walking perfectly because he immediately talks about what? Confessing our sins. If we're walking perfectly, we wouldn't have any sins. But we have our sins. We have our failings. We have our unrighteousness. We don't have it all together. But even in that condition, that God offers to us a forgiveness that we don't deserve. That's what we call grace. Undeserved favor from God. As a way that he shows his love for us and that we can live. So, the mandate for us, the demand for us, is therefore, as the forgiven, those who've been forgiven, that we need to forgive others. Now, we get into these relationships with people, with one another, and you can just kind of see it among the apostles that there is the rubbing, the chafing, the jostling, that you know, the, the, the vying for position and prestige and power, the desire for supremacy over others. Try to make yourself big by making others look small. You know, and in that grind, we get irked. We get upset. We get angry. We harbor malice, ill will, grudges. So that there's something in our hearts that is just not right. So, how do we forgive those who have wronged us? who have sinned against us. Jesus gives us this ideal that we need to forgive those who have sinned against us. And we we pray, Father, forgive us as we have forgiven others. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read that, I think, oh man, I could be in real trouble. Because I may not have forgiven some people who have wronged me. So, as we think about learning to forgive, first, 
I want to say beware hardness of heart. In Galatians 5, we have two parallel passages. What we call the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And we know the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I can't rattle off the works of the flesh. Maybe I should. But in the middle of the list, there are things like anger, hatred, bitterness. You get a picture going on here? That the consequence of being unforgiving is a hardened heart. And the hardened heart will resist and even lash out at those who've wronged us. That may be one of the hardest things for us to deal with as people. And so we need to be very aware of and honest with ourselves about what's going on inside us. And to identify, you know, uh, you think about the passage in Hebrews where warning Christians about the danger of following the way of the ancient Israelites who developed a, a calloused, evil, unbelieving heart. And we can do that. And so to maintain the sensitivity of heart, and that will, will kind of come through some of the other things we sound. All right, so in 1 Corinthians 13, talking about uh, love, the Apostle Paul it includes a very interesting line. Love does not keep count of wrongs suffered. Have you ever known somebody who said, well, my spouse did this 32 times? No. I remember a, a spouse that said to me that, that her husband had done something to her seven times. She says, but that's okay. I forgave him. And you know what I said? If you forgave him, how come you're keeping count? Love doesn't keep count. Forgiveness needs to be complete. You know, one of the most beautiful pictures about forgiveness in the the Old Testament was God talking about, I will remember their sins no more. And one of the beautiful things is, you know, like, like we know God is omniscient. He knows everything. But there are some things that he chooses not to remember. And when he forgives you, and he forgives me, he chooses not to remember what we've done. That's wonderful. But in a human sense, if you think about it, if you're keeping count, keeping track of how many times somebody wronged you, What you're doing is you're nursing a grudge. You're building hatred, animosity. You're not going to be able to forgive when that happens. How about the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Would you like people that kept your sins against you 
and held you down? Kind of, you know, the, the, the old thing about, man, I would get really upset if I saw somebody do this, the tying the, the tin can to the tail of the dog. Well, sometimes people do that emotionally with people around them, and they, they just keep holding what that person has done against them. How can you escape? Well, if you want people to give you a chance and to give you new opportunity, we need to do that as well. One of the first things I thought about as I was thinking about this lesson is Jesus' prayer at the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I think there's two sides to that. One of them is just just that uh, awareness, that openness, that, that lovingness, that willing to forgive. But the other part of that, that I think is also very, very important, is that Jesus is, is understanding and compensating for the fact that, yes, they're doing wrong. And in one sense, they intend to do wrong, but they don't really understand the wrong that they're doing. And so he actually prays for God not to hold that against them. That's a very big love. I always think about a, a sitcom character many years ago, and this is, well, there are some of us here that will remember Maud. And what was her big line? God will get you for this. No. We want to be those who help spread God's love and forgiveness, not those who hold it against people. Um, and so Paul had said that we should forgive one another from the heart. It should be sincere. It should be real. Or the key expression we want to use is that we forgive others as God forgives us. There are a couple of passages here that I think are really uh, Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, as in Christ God forgave you. And Colossians 3.13. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgiveness is huge. But, you know, one of the things I find really interesting, and I think back to my years of life, is I find that I've come across people who carry huge grudges all their lives. They're consumed by their, their hatred and their anger. At this person. I knew a man many, many years ago who was basically living on his loan. Nobody wanted to go see him. I was about the only person that would go see him. But I was subjected in that to hearing the list of all of the people who ever wronged him. And I know it was not all. (laughs) But then in his books, those were the major offenders. I always 
talking with my son David the other day about, uh, a week or so ago, about the, this sermon. And he said, you know, that, that the harboring a grudge uh, is like drinking poison and waiting for the other guy to die. It's not going to happen, is it? We consume ourselves with our anger. So I want to share a quote with you here, and then I'll tell you where it came from. Okay? Forgiveness means different things to different people. Generally, however, it involves a decision to let go of resentment and thoughts of revenge. The act that hurt or offended you might always be with you. There's a truth. Memory, uh, unfortunately, doesn't disappear with forgiveness, does it? But forgiveness can lessen its grip on us and help free you from the control of the person who harmed you. Isn't that a powerful statement? Now, I'm just going to play a little game with you here. Where did that come from? Do you think that came from the religious world? Did it come from the self-help guides? Did it come from what? It came from the Mayo Clinic webpage. It is a medical response about the importance of forgiveness. And I know those who have worked in the area of, of human care know that attitude determines a lot about the prognosis and the future of the patient, doesn't it? And the patient that is consumed with anger, hatred, bitterness is not likely to get better. Okay, I want to close with two other quotes. Uh, I think these are really interesting. One, without forgiveness... Life is governed by an endless cycle of resentment and retaliation. Without forgiveness, life is governed by an endless cycle of resentment and retaliation. But then the last one. People hurt each other. Right? You know, I can say, anybody here has never been hurt by another person? You've been in a bubble. It happens to everyone, intentionally, unintentionally, regretfully or not. It's a part of what we do as people. The beauty is that we have the ability to heal and forgive. That, I think, is one of the great God-given blessings that we have because as Christians, Jesus has given his life to forgive us. And we can live in the freedom of knowing that the greatest offense in our lives toward God have been totally removed. I think it's always appropriate for us to raise that thought as we close our time. To think about and to encourage those who are not yet believers, who have not yet put their faith and their trust in Christ, to think about what it means to be forgiven by God. What it means to have a Savior. And if there's some way that we can help you in your understanding of that and you're learning how you can approach to God, approach God with a pure heart, 
and a clear conscience because you've been forgiven and how you can share that forgiveness with others. Tim's done a really great job of picking our song for this morning. You know, and as we close our time together, I want you to really think about the words of the song that we're singing.